You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Merry Christmas sounds weird to say. It's only November, but Christmas is only a month from now, and we've already started Advent, as you can tell. Um, so we're on the home stretch to Christmas Day, and um, therefore we're starting a new sermon series that we've titled Now Unto the King. Um, because, of course, this is a season of the year where we're especially reminded, despite um, all the worldly distractions and, and enticements that try to make us forget, right? but we're reminded that this is all about Jesus. This is about the King of Kings and His kingdom come. And so that's what this whole sermon series is going to be about. We're going to be looking to Christ. We're going to be turning to the king and talking about what kind of a king he is and what that means for us. And so we're going to start today by reading a passage in 1 Timothy from chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. And we're going to tie that in with the part of the Christmas story here this morning. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy. He says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could be gathered here this morning, Lord God. I thank you for those who showed up yesterday to help us decorate for Christmas, Lord, to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, Lord God. And, and I thank you that just as we go into the Christmas season, Lord, as we go through this series as well, Lord, that, we, that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to set our hearts and set our minds upon you through this, Lord God, and through this season, and that uh, you would keep us from distractions, you would keep us from temptations, Lord God, but that we would continually look to you and shine your light in this season, because this is an opportunity to declare how how amazing you are, Lord God. And so we want to do that this morning. We want to declare how amazing your name is and how amazing it is that you came into this world to save us. So we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the past uh, couple years or so, just about every, every year in December, someone puts up a billboard ad uh, along 3rd Ave here. It's just a couple blocks down the road. It's not up this year. I don't know if it will be up in December. Um, but you may have seen it in the past. The billboard has a picture of Mary and Joseph, and, and they're holding the baby Jesus. And it's captioned with this message, uh, Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for the season. Uh, if you've never seen the sign, you've probably heard the expression, and you've probably heard the expression hundreds of times, uh, because it's a really clever expression, because it rhymes reason with season. And so people use it all the time. Um, anyways, despite its overuse, uh, it's nonetheless a true statement. And again, it's pretty much what we'll be talking about throughout the sermon series, in fact. Um, and I think most Christians, as they, as they would have driven past the billboard, they would have seen it and been like, yeah, that's cool. I agree with that, right? Um, but I think for those who disagree with its message, uh, they, they probably don't like it much. 
right? Why? Because it can be offensive uh, to people who disagree with it. Uh, in fact, these days, even saying Merry Christmas in public can be offensive to some, or at the very least annoying. Um, and I'd like to argue that one of the reasons of the season that people find this expression so offensive is that because if it's true, if Jesus is the reason for the season, if the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords was born into the world to save it from itself, then that means we're not in control of our own lives. That means we're not kings of our own castle. If Jesus is the King, then we're not. Psalm 95 verses 3 says he is. It says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. So this idea subconsciously and even consciously puts us on edge because the humbling truth that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords is always going to be at odds with our prideful desire to be kings and gods ourselves. We want to wear the crown. and We don't want to give up the crown. As it says in Isaiah 14, 13 to 14, uh, Isaiah says this to God's people, it says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is the desire of man, right? This is the desire of man to exalt ourselves, Right? To exalt ourselves, to lift ourselves up onto the throne of God and make ourselves like God. To be kings and queens of our own lives. Even going back to the original sin of Adam and Eve. How did the serpent, how did the evil one tempt them? By telling them that they could be as God. That they could have the knowledge and wisdom of God. So that sounded pretty good to them. But Jesus, who was and is the perfect image of God, the King of Ages, the King of Kings, he gives us a totally, totally different picture of what it actually looks like to be the image of God when he comes into this world. We're going to talk about that in a bit, but before we go any further about what that looks like, I want to take a minute to look upon that other king, that other king that was around when Jesus was born, because he's the perfect contrast to Jesus. And we're talking about King Herod. So let's talk about King Herod for a bit. We're going to read Matthew 2, 1 to 4. Matthew 2, 1 to 4. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So having these wise men come in to the courts of Herod and ask him, where is the one who was born to be king? We want to worship him. It's comparable to us saying, Jesus is the reason for the season, or Merry Christmas in our culture today. It's, it's offensive And why was it offensive to King Herod? Why was he troubled? Because he was the king. He was the king, right? And these foreigners, 
They come strutting into his courts, suggesting that there's a different king, that there's a better king, someone else that was born as king, over and above his rightful place to the throne. So he's thinking, the one born king of the Jews. No, 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 no. I'm king. That's what he's thinking. I'm the king. There's no other king but me. This is my throne, my power, mine, and I'm not giving it up. That's what King Herod's thinking. So, he's, so he calls all his chief priests together, and he's like, hey, where was this guy born? Let's go, let's go murder him. And that's what he did. He, he, well, he tried to do. He had all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem, where it was prophesied that, prophesied that Jesus would be born. He had all of them executed just so he could try to kill this new king. According to the population of the time, it was probably about 20 to 30 little boys, just little two-year-old toddlers, just so he could hold on to his throne. But on the subject, that's, since we're talking about it, that's not all he did. That's not all he did to keep his throne during his reign. In fact, King Herod was known as King Herod the Great. And he's probably known as King Herod the Great because he wanted people to call him that. That's how he wanted to be known. And so in many circumstances, in order to hold on to his greatness, he had family members killed, including one of his wives and his children. And some of his children, he had subjects murdered who he'd suspected of of betraying him or, or talking against him. He had people in the streets that were speaking out against his rule put to death, even while he himself lay on his own deathbed just so he could keep his crown, just so he could keep his throne for one more day. So that's the kind of king King Herod was. But it's no wonder, because in those days, they they truly believed that whoever was king was certainly chosen by God, uh, and therefore represented the image of God. And in some cultures back then, they even believed that kings were maybe even a type of God, like a mini-God. And so people would worship their kings. So if Herod, in his pride, thinks he's a great king and God's chosen one, maybe even he thought, maybe he even thought of himself as God. We don't know, but he might have. Either way, he'd, he'd feel justified. He'd feel justified in doing everything he can do to maintain his reign, to maintain his, his crown, his godlike status, instead of stepping aside and letting some baby take his throne. Right? He's going to feel justified in, in killing whoever he needs to kill and stepping on whoever he needs to step on to keep his throne if he thinks that, that God has put him there or that he is God. And while he was typically more violent and oppressive than most, probably because he had the power to do it, the reason we're looking at what kind of king he is is because it's important for us to recognize that King Herod is a magnified example of our own hearts and our own human nature. Timothy Keller writes, The full teaching of the Bible is that the source of all the world's evil ultimately stems from the self-centeredness, self-righteous, and self-absorption of every human heart. King Herod's reaction to Christ is, in this sense, a picture of us all. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is the king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. So whether your throne is, is the CEO's chair of a company or a coveted position at your work or your stubborn disposition or the left lane on the highway and you just won't get on the right lane even though there's a lineup like behind you, 
you know, people like that, they just like, mm, I'm in control here, right? I just won't move. Or, or whether it's being the head of the party planning committee at the church, right? Whatever our throne is, especially if it's something that we feel defines us or if it's something that, that gives us a feeling of being in control, whatever our throne is, we're not likely to just give it up to someone else. So I'm sure that when the wise men asked Herod about the whereabouts of the true king of the Jews because they want to go worship him, I'm sure it created a deep and prideful resistance in Herod's heart and probably a lot of fear as well that he might lose his throne because he doesn't want to humble himself. He doesn't want to bow down to another king. He wants to be served as the king. And again, that's both a cry and battle within all of our hearts. Deep down, we don't want to submit or bow down to authority. We want to be the authority. We want to maintain control. That's why we rebel against God. Another example is, you know, why do we think the idea of working for ourselves is so prevalent in our culture? Right? Not saying that everyone who owns their own business is thinking this way or that it's bad in and of itself or even that it's bad to make money in and of itself. But that's definitely one of the reasons uh, why the idea is so popular in our culture because we don't want to work for somebody else. We, we want to we have the power. We want to have the control. And then on, on, the, on the same vein, we often feel ashamed or feel like we have to be ashamed if, if we work a menial job that's below us. Why, why are we ashamed of that? Because it stems from our nature to subvert authority. We don't want to be the servants or the, or the servers. We don't want to be the bottom of the barrel. We don't want to wash people's feet. We want to be served. We want the upper class. We want to be the upper class, right? We, and we have dreams of being rich and winning the lottery and having a boat, right? We want to have power and glory. We want to be masters of our own lives and, if possible, the lives of others. And we want it so bad that we enviously celebrate the celebrities and wealthy in our society that have those things. Even the idea that there's a lower class and an upper class as part of our worldview points to this idea that to have more is to be higher and better than those who have less. The greater our empire, the more control, the more power, the more money we have, the more stuff we have, the godlier we think we are. So again, what would threaten this mindset? What would threaten this way of life? The idea that there's a greater king, a king of kings who rules over all and claims ownership and authority over all our lives, no matter what lofty position that we think we hold. That's why our natural response to Jesus is the reason for the season is often to resist an offense because our pride is certainly offended at the idea that there's a greater king than us. So like Herod, we're often saying in our hearts, a king over me? No, 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 no. This is mine, right? I'm in charge of my life. I'm the one in control here and I'm not stepping aside for nobody. It's a spiritual power struggle that's going on in our hearts with us and God. Like in Genesis, if you read the story of Jacob, he wrestles with the messenger of the Lord, like physically like wrestles with him because he didn't want to submit to his will. And even though the messenger of the Lord overpowered Jacob, it says that Jacob won, which is, which is pretty cool. I, I think it's pretty cool anyways. 
It says he won, even though the messenger of the Lord overpowered him. Why? Because Jacob was humbled. Because his heart was changed. He lost the fight, but in being brought low and in, in, in hum, in being humbled, he actually won. Therefore, without a change of heart in us, without repentant hearts that are prepared to hear and receive the truth that we need a king, that we need a savior, then we'll lose. We'll lose, we'll rebel and resist in whatever way we can. And we might, we might think that that's winning, taking control, we might think that that's winning, but that's losing. And maybe we'll rebel by creating our own version of God that works for us. So we'll rebel against the real God by creating our own God that, that works for us, that we can work with. Maybe we'll just stubbornly deny the existence of God altogether and just do our own thing. Maybe we'll build up our riches so we feel secure. And we might give some of it away, some of it away to feel morally good about it, right? Maybe we'll simply ignore the Christmas billboards. Or maybe we'll become really religious so that we feel as if we can become as good as God on our own merit. We all rebel differently against God depending on our personality and circumstance, but without a change of heart, we all do. That's why Keller writes again, This dark episode of King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to, even hatred of, the claims of God on our lives, who reveals himself as our absolute king. And if the Lord born at Christmas is the true God, then no one will seek for him unless our hearts are supernaturally changed to want and seek him. The ironic thing is that the more we resist God and the more we try to be, become like him on our own merit by doing more and getting more, the more unlike him we actually become. And the more we're actually submitting to the lie that we can become gods ourselves, just as Adam and Eve did. But back to Jesus. Jesus distinctly displays to us at Christmas that to be a true king in the image of God is not to gain riches or power or dominance over others, but it's to be like a baby born in a manger. The image of God, the king of the ages, is like a baby born in a manger. It seems like such a contrast, but it's the perfect example of who God is. We're going to talk about what the significance of that is and how significant it is. Um, let's turn back to First Timothy 1, verse 17, which says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul's describing to Timothy here are the attributes of God. And Jesus shared those attributes before coming into creation. So I'm just going to go through them really quickly. So he says he's king eternal, meaning he exists for all time and has divine authority over all kings and rulers. He's immortal, which means he's not under the curse of death as we are because of our sin. He's invisible, which means he exists in spirit and is set apart from creation. He's holy. And so to sum it up, Jesus then who is with God, 
The word was with God at the beginning, right? Jesus then was the king of kings before, cre- before the creation of the earth, perfectly equal with God the Father in status and in nature. He had all the power and glory a king could ever have. Jesus had it all. And yet, instead of using his authority and power to exploit us or lord over us, he set it aside. And the creator came into the created world to save us. And when he came into the world, no one expected it to go the way it did, right? He wasn't born in a castle amid servants and riches and red carpets. He was born to a virgin peasant woman in a stable and in complete obscurity. No one, no one came looking for him. Even the wise men who were following the star, where did they go first? They went to the palace where, where Herod was or the, whatever castle he lived in. I don't know. He went there to inquire about the whereabouts of the Messiah. And they went there because they expected Jesus to be royalty. In fact, no one would have even known Jesus was born had it not been for the angels who, who reported the news to the shepherds that night. But that only further proves the point. The only ones who came to see him and worship him were lowly, smelly shepherds. So at a time when King Herod calls himself great, the king of kings, who is greater, made himself the lowest. And King Herod, in an attempt to become as God, he built himself an empire of violence and greed, whereas Jesus actually was God incarnate, but he does quite the opposite of Herod. He empties himself and lays his glory down for the sake of the world. Herod self-righteously killed anyone who had threatened his earthly throne in order to save himself, but Jesus, looking out at the whole human race, standing in rebellion against his rule and reign, gave up his throne and his life to save the world. He gave up his heavenly crown for a crown of thorns. That's what it means to be the king. That's what it means to be equal with God. To be king, to be equal with God, isn't to make people submit to you or, 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 or to use them to your advantage. It's to serve and give your life for them. CFD Mule writes it like this. Divine equality does not mean getting, but giving. It is properly expressed in self-giving love. And the great exchange of Christ's life for ours at the cross is self-giving love. And it's awesome. But I think what we often forget when it comes to the story of giving is also how incredible and sacrificial it was that Jesus even came into the world in the first place. Because when he did, he set aside his very nature. He didn't lose his divinity. He's still fully God. But but he emptied himself of even having the thought of using his godliness for his own glory. Because in being born as a child, that means he set aside his immortality, which culminated in his death at the cross. He set aside his nature as spirit when he took on flesh, 
on the constraints of creation, right? Things like hunger, time, temptation, and suffering. And he, overcome, he overcame all of those things. And he even set aside his glory when he was born into obscurity, culminated in the separation from God at the cross. Also that we, unworthy sinners and enemies to his eternal throne, could become heirs to his throne. Daryl W. Johnson writes, In becoming a human being, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, did not cease to be what he was. He did not renounce his divinity. He did not strip himself of divinity. It was exactly the opposite. Jesus was expressing what all that divinity really means. The Son of God, who from all eternity possesses the form of God, who from all eternity is equal to God the Father, understands being God in terms of cradle, towel, cross, incarnation, servanthood, crucifixion. The word of God, the word of God in which all creation was made and is sustained and is given life and breath and purpose and image. That word became flesh and came into creation. Can we even comprehend how huge that is, how crazy that is? I don't I don't actually think that we can comprehend it. First Timothy 1:15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners, Christ Jesus came into the world. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. This should blow our minds. Really, it should blow our minds. But I think because we hear about it every year, it's becoming normal. Yeah, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Yep. But it's anything but normal. It's like an artist jumping into his painting and taking on the attributes of the canvas and the, and, the, and the chemical makeup of the paint for the rest of time. That's the type of king that Jesus is. That's what he did for us. Mark 10, 42 to 44 says, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows us what it actually looks like to be king, to be the image of God. What it actually looks like to be the greatest. It's to humble yourself and lay down your life. It's not to be served, but to serve. Philippians 2 shows us the result of all this. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus served mankind as a ransom for sin. For sin, He lowered himself completely. He emptied himself completely. And the result, he was exalted above all. Jesus was able to do it. None of us could. He surrendered completely in humble obedience to the authority of God. And that's why he's the only one worthy to be exalted and given the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So quickly then, what what does this mean for us? What can we take from this? We can take a lot from it, but I'm going to give three points in closing this morning. Number one, Jesus is the king. We aren't. Jesus is the king. We aren't. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing because he rules and reigns with selfless love that freely invites us into his kingdom as heirs to his throne. As, as Henry talked about before a coffee break, through him we have victory. Through him we have victory over our sin and our pride that makes us want to be king. And so he's the king. He's the only one worthy of being king. And that's an amazing thing. That's an awesome thing. Number two, Jesus is a king who now empathizes with us. Right? He empathizes with us in our humanity because he became fully man. So he's a loving and personal king that dwelt among us so that we can relate to him and we can know him. And on that note, Jesus coming into the world proves to us that this world matters. We matter to him. God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world that he came to dwell within it in order to redeem it. So Jesus is a king who empathizes with us in our humanity. And number three, Jesus is a servant king. And if we're his image bearers, how could we think we're to be any different? 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or for one another. In other words, we don't achieve or gain godlike status by building ourselves up and tearing others down, but rather in giving generously, in laying down our lives for others. That's what it looks like to be image bearers of God. That's who we're called to be. Because in the kingdom of God, the least are the greatest. Just as we talked about last week, the end of Malachi, we went... We talked about John 12, 25, when Jesus says, those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in the world keep it for eternal life. And we saw a perfect example of that this morning. King Herod, he loved his life, right? He, he built up his empire. But what happens? He dies in the end. But Jesus, he laid it all down, and he conquered the grave. John said again, writes, in Jesus, we discover that God understands being God in terms of self-emptying love. Those who bear this God's image are most truly themselves when they empty themselves and give themselves away. Those who bear this God's image 
are most truly themselves when they empty themselves and give themselves away. And because Christ conquered sin and death, he conquered the pride in our hearts, we can, we can do that. We can now lay down our lives for others in his strength, the power of his Holy Spirit working within us. We can lay down our lives for others, and we can do it with joy and confidence, knowing that Christ defeated the grave. Because that means that we don't have to pridefully exalt or lift ourselves up anymore. Through Christ, we've been already exalted. Through Christ, we've been sealed as his own. And we know that Jesus will lift us up with him in resurrection life to be, to be heirs to his throne, citizens of his, his eternal kingdom, partakers of his glory. We're his. We've been lifted up with Christ. Therefore, let's be reminded this Christmas to turn our eyes off of ourselves, off of our empires, off of our crowns, and turn unto him in repentance, and prayer, and worship, and meditating on his word. Let's turn unto him, the only God, the only immortal, invisible, and eternal king. And by the grace of Christ and through the strength of his spirit within us, let's humbly lay down our crowns at the foot of the cross. And let's honor him and acknowledge his glory by living out lives of humility, generosity, and sacrifice. Jesus showed us what it meant to be an image bearer of God. Let's follow his example. And by his strength and grace, let's be image bearers of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that every time we open your word, Lord, your spirit brings, brings conviction and change and sanctification to our hearts, Lord God. And I pray that this morning is no different, Lord. I pray that... that as we, as we went through your word this morning, that you would use it to change our hearts, to change our perspective, to change our mindset, to change our worldview, Lord, to point us towards you so that we can know you, the one true God, through Jesus Christ, Lord, and so that we can live for you and for your glory, Lord. We can't thank you enough, Jesus, for emptying yourself for coming into creation. Lord, it's incredible. It's, it's almost impossible to comprehend. I think it is impossible to comprehend what you actually did for us, what you actually gave up for us, Lord. But as we grow in the knowledge of, of who you are and what you've done for us, Lord, let us be filled continually with hearts of thanksgiving rejoicing in your name, especially this Christmas. I give you all the glory. Amen.